Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Christ is in our midst. Today we celebrate the very high-ranking feast of the Transfiguration, in which we remember and rejoice in that great event on Holy Mount Tabor when Christ revealed his divine glory to Peter, James, and John while conversing with Moses and Elijah. We also read of how the Father's voice came forth from the cloud which enveloped them. We also, this reminds us of the Father's voice at his baptism. And the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The disciples were overwhelmed by the power of that voice and they fell back to the ground. We always see this depicted in the icons of this feast with the three apostles down and falling, sort of in motion to the ground. And then Jesus comes and he touches them and he says, get up, do not be afraid. And when they are able to look up, they see that they are alone there just with Jesus. That's what we're celebrating today. It's a great, great feast. Well, today is also the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. And yet this feast uh, surplants um, this ninth Sunday after Pentecost, which This feast always falls on August 6th, and it just happened to land on a Sunday this year. So it trumps, it trumps the Sunday that we would normally be celebrating today. And this tells us something about the ranking of this feast in our liturgical calendar. It's very important. It's not normal, it's rare for a feast to trump a Sunday Mass. So it's important, obviously. But it's not only important in our calendar. It's also of particular importance in the events of Christ's earthly life. It's of pivotal importance, of course. I mean, everything's important in his life. His teachings, his parables, his healings, and his miracles. But the event of his transfiguration is one of two sort of meta-events. Sandwiched between his birth and death. And these two events they pretty much sum up everything. In these two events, the whole story, the whole revelation concerning the creative and redemptive work of Christ is summed up. The other event is his baptism. Both events, the Father's voice thunders from heaven. His baptism points to and reveals his sacrificial death. His transfiguration points to and reveals his glorification in his humanity, his divine glory. Now these are not just events in the life of the eternal Son of God. These are also events, we need to understand, in the life of the Son of Man, his favorite designation for himself. 
They are experienced as God made man. And therefore they are definitive for us. Who have been made the sons of God. We too are baptized. In the baptism of Christ. And when we are baptized with Christ. We also die with him. We die to the desires of the flesh. So that we might share in his divine glory. That divine glory which is revealed in his transfiguration. So Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor was on the one hand sort of a pre-resurrection manifestation of his divine glory, the glory of the eternal Son. But it was also a revelation of our future, our telos, the reason for which we were created. It is the divine glory of the Son of Man. God made man. And that glory is now shared with those who have been adopted as sons of God. Man in Christ. This is what St. Peter is getting at in his second epistle, which was our first reading today. He speaks of his personal experience when he witnessed Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor. And as St. Peter writes this epistle, uh, there's no uh, designated audience. He's, this is probably coming out of Rome but he sort of just writes it to everyone. As he writes this, St. Peter makes clear that he's preparing for his imminent death by crucifixion, which the Lord had revealed was coming soon. And he says he will put off this tent, or this tabernacle. That's important because he's getting ready to talk about this uh, experience he had on Mount Tabor. You remember, he wanted to build three tabernacles. And he says, I'm getting ready to put off this tabernacle. Well, he learned in that experience uh, there's no eternal tabernacle yet. <laughs> we still must pass through death. We're in the age of our death. And we'll receive the eternal tabernacle after that. So he says he has to put off his tent as he prepares for his death. And he recalls this event. Uh, he recalls this event, this experience on, of Christ's transfiguration... And he does it in order to remind the faithful what they are destined for. What God has promised them, he says. If. <laughs> what, they, what they will receive from God is a promise if. There's an if. There's a caveat. If you do these certain things, he says. So this morning, I just want to briefly... Take a look at the context of this passage, because in the feast here in the Mass, we read just the short section where he's talking about this. I want to look at a few verses that come before it, um, and his comments that lead up to his comments about the transfiguration, because what we read today comes at the end of an exhortation. He's exhorting his audience, and then the punchline is his story about the the, uh, his experience of the transfiguration. In other words, he's saying, if you do these things through this exhortation, then your future is to share in the glory of Christ's transfiguration. So our reading today began in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1. So there's 15 verses that precede this of exhortation. He begins with a salutation, the first paragraph. 
and he establishes that what his exhortation is so that they might know the rich knowledge of God. That's the point of all of this, that they might know the rich knowledge of God. And this is important. And by knowledge, he does not mean uh, more information about God. He, he essentially means that they might experience the glory of the transfiguration. He's speaking here of an intimate, existential, experiential knowledge, an encounter with the living God, where we are brought into some kind of mystical union with God, an experience of the majesty of God. That's what he means by knowledge, which he repeats several times in the passage. He goes on to say that through this rich knowledge, this experience, this encounter, the divine power has been bestowed on us and has given us everything, he says. We've received everything we need, everything necessary for life and godliness through this encounter and the knowledge of God. By him who has called us by his own divine glory, and excellence, the word there is virtue, by his own divine glory and virtue or goodness. So this calling to life and godliness is a share, a calling to share in his glory. Sort of a parallel there, he just repeats it. And the knowledge of God that he's talking about, again, is an encounter, an experience of the presence, the life, and the power of God. We say knowledge is power. This really is the kind of knowledge that really is power, real power, not just informational power. And as you will see as we go on here, our telos, our end, our completion, our perfection, the thing for which we've been created and exist for that every single one of us desires above all else, whether we know it or not, it is uphill and it is on a path with many obstacles and many enemies lying in wait. And that's why we need this power. We need the power of God through the knowledge of God to attain unto a life of godliness and virtue which is the experience of the eternal glory of God. And then he goes on and here we're going to come to a most famous line so often quoted by Orthodox and I want us to realize that this line, which we've heard many times, is associated with the transfiguration. He says that through these things, through this divine knowledge that empowers us to life and godliness and glory, we're receiving the promises that he has made to man. And then he clarifies what is the sum total of all these promises that he has made to man. Promises, and he's referring to the promises made to Abraham and the prophets in the Old Testament. What is the sum total of all these promises? Quote, so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that's a passage most of us are familiar with. That is the context of that passage, where he is setting up for uh, his audience the... The, the brass ring for their existence is, the trans, is revealed and manifest in the transfiguration. And he's saying, he's exhorting them to say, this is how you get it. And he's going to say, if you don't do what I'm telling you, you're not going to get it. 
running the risk of sounding like I'm preaching uh, works salvation here, but you just have to deal with that. I'm just, we're quoting Peter. All right, so this is why you exist. This is your reward. This is your telos. This is your perfection to share in the glory of God, to taste and see, to participate in God, in the divine nature, in the most intimate way imaginable, to be in Christ, which St. Paul says, to be in Christ and Christ in you, this is the hope of what? The hope of glory. The hope of what is manifest on the Mount Tabor in the Transfiguration. So this is wonderful, right? This is glorious. This is the vision that we should have. This is what we're all striving for. This is our expectation. This is why we're here this morning. If you're here for any other reason, you're here for the wrong reason. This is why you're sitting out here, why you're about to receive the body and blood of Christ. It's why you get up, come to church. Why you say your prayers and you feed the poor, live a, a holy life. And put down the desires of the flesh for this very reason. It's all yours. But here's the exhortation. Here's the caveat. Quote. By means of what was promised you, you may become partakers of the divine nature after. After. Escaping. The worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire after after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire that's the stage we're in now after we die you died in your baptism but you're dying now today we die daily this is the time for death as I preach every holy week we're in good Friday we get a little foretaste of Easter Sunday, but this life, these are the 70 years of Babylon now. That's where we are. We get a deposit, we get a foretaste, we're going to taste today. We have the Holy Spirit, we have the joy, which is our strength, but the joy and the strength of the Lord is there to help us to get through Good Friday. We live in the 70 years of Babylon. We don't go back to Jerusalem, the heavenly city, until our resurrection. We need to be clear about that. Because so many people are surprised by the difficulties of this life. I thought he said, I thought he from No, no, you were listening to that Texan on TV. It's like telling you all this nonsense. You never said that. We live in Good Friday. Now there's joy in Good Friday. But there's also, you know, a fight. We've got to cross the finish line. And that's what St. Peter is saying here in this passage. He's holding out the transfiguration as the end, the end. That's the goal. That's what he's promised us is real glory. But in the meantime, we've got to escape worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire, which exists in every single one of us in our, the mortality of this body. So the glory comes after the fight of faith. First death and then glory. And we're living out our death. He goes on, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, to virtue is the same word as excellence before virtue, uh, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance. And he lists some other things. He ends with love. Whenever Paul makes 
uh, here, Peter, but whenever there's a list like that, and then he ends with love, Paul does this normally, um, love encapsulates the whole list. You know, this is, it's not like you knock one of these things off at a time. That's not sort of how it works. You never, you never master faithfulness. You have to be faithful to the end of the race. Um, and he says, for if these things are really yours and are continually increasing or abounding, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. And remember, he has called us to bear fruit. He didn't say, go try and bear fruit. Well, I did my best, Lord. No, he said, he said go bear fruit. Go multiply the talent. Don't bury it. That's not going to work. These things, if they are yours and abounding and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing. We're back to that knowing, which means being glorified. Knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ramps up the exhortation. He gives it an extra little punch. You didn't quite get what I just said. Let me give you the flip side. <laughs> but concerning the one who lacks such things, he is blind. That is to say, he is nearsighted since he has forgotten, he's writing to Christians, he has forgotten about the cleansing of his past sins. He's speaking to people who have been baptized and Christians. Sorry, John Calvin um, and my Baptist uh, friends. <laughs> Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble into sin, for thus an entrance into the heavenly kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided to you. So he says all that, and then he has a short little paragraph where he basically says, if you remember, um, I'm going to bug you about this. So, you know, uh, I'm going to harass you because it's important that you don't forget these things. And, and he says, I, you know, I'm going to actually leave a record so that I can harass you after I'm dead. Um, and then after he has a little paragraph saying that, that's when he gets into the paragraph that was our reading today, which is the capstone of his exhortation. If you do these things, the knowledge of God and goodness and virtue and all of this results in and is manifest ultimately in what we saw on the Holy Mount participating in the very glory of God. That's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. At the beginning of that little section, which we read this morning, in verse 16, he begins by saying, we didn't follow cleverly concocted fables. This is important. This, I'm going to conclude with this. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't follow fables or man-made systems or theories to a good life. When we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we didn't make this up. We didn't fabricate this. We didn't come up with this on our own. We didn't concoct this through our own intelligence and intellect and prowess. We were eyewitnesses. And this is the whole point. We were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. I'm not offering you another philosophy of life, a self-help improvement program like what you can get from Tony Robinson. 
Literally, he says Tony, no, he doesn't say Tony Robinson, but he is, he's probably referring here to the, the Stoics and the Epicureans. I'm not offering you what the Stoics are offering you. I mean, they have a little part of the truth, but that's not what this is. And this is not what Tony Robinson's offering, or that guy in Texas on TV with 14,000 people in his church. The fruit of the divine power that enables you to pursue godliness through, and the reason he says this is because of his list, self-control, that sounds like the Stoics. Perseverance, all of these things, resulting in love, it is far more than any other system or self-help program offers you. You are going to become a participant in the divine nature. You are going to be a sharer in the divine glory, the very majesty of God. You are going to become sons of God. He's basically saying, I was there. I was on the holy mount. I saw it with mine own eyes. I heard the Father's voice. When he spoke, it was so powerful, we fell down the mountain. It threw us down to the ground backwards, knocked down by the power of it all. We saw Christ shining like the sun. That's what Peter's saying. That's the promise of the Father. And nothing less. He's saying, this is real. This is real. We need to understand. This is real. This is not a joke. It's not make-believe. And he's exhorting them not to disqualify themselves through negligence. Press on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.